get-go, people can say, oh, okay, I kind of I kind of get the gist of this this guy. Mm. And there's and so once you get that out of the way, then you can get on with the work. And then importantly, you have I have to live up to what <laughs> I you know talked about in terms of my leadership. Right. Because if the if the sleeves don't match the cuffs, people just think you're trying to manipulate them. For Ford CEO Mark Fields, the love of cars started early. He still remembers a set of matchbox cars his dad bought him for his sixth birthday. Of course, love of cars alone wasn't going to get him to the helm of the second largest U.S. automaker and a brand that's been around for more than a century. That would take a mix of competitive spirit, adaptability, and a knack for getting teams to focus quickly. This is Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play, and once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are pretty good conversation starters. Mark Fields leads a company that last year sold more than 6.6 million cars, bringing in more than $141 billion from vehicle sales. In the era of Uber and Tesla, that's getting harder by the day. I sat down with Fields to talk about some of Ford's latest efforts and his own journey to the top. Here's Mark Fields. The news that you're making today is about the Lincoln Navigator. And you've got wireless charging in the car. You've got uh, the chauffeur service and an at-home test drive that you're piloting and planning to, to roll out, I believe, nationwide. Yes? Wow, we're, we're piloting uh, at-home test drives, right. we're piloting the chauffeur service, uh-huh. and right now nationwide we have the pickup and delivery, and that came out of a pilot. So huh. if these things pan out and customers like them, and we learn some things, then that's what we would do, just like we did with pickup and delivery. So at a time when people are using more and more of these services like Uber, Lyft, where somebody else is doing the driving, what are you trying to do with these services? What's, what's the mindset? What's the plan? Well, very simply, it's around, if you think about the luxury business in Lincoln, our whole approach was, with Lincoln is, you know, we have a real commitment to a world-class luxury brand with beautiful and elegant products combined with warm uh, uh, and human and personalized services because one of the luxuries of today is time. Mm. And if you can give some time back to folks, that means a lot. So if you think about the pickup and delivery. Uh, every and that's pickup and delivery of what? For service of your vehicle. Okay, so picking up the car, needs service, and then bringing it back. All right, you, could okay. just, you, you can call, let's say your vehicle needs servicing. You can call, you can arrange to have it picked up at home or your office. A valet will come out, they'll give you a loaner, they'll take the vehicle back. That, think about the, the luxury of time on that. Why would you not do that? And, and, and that's why we're trying, we're trying to create a, the, the brand, the Lincoln brand. It's more than just about great distinctive product. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's giving them time back and giving them these experiences that they go, wow. Just like they go, wow, about the product. How does the chauffeur service work? Well, the chauffeur service... Is that somebody service, driving your car or somebody yeah, showing up? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a pilot. We're doing it in San Diego and, and Miami. And one of the things we're doing as a company, which I think is so cool, is we're experimenting, mm-hmm. right? Some of this stuff is going to work. Some of it's not going to work. And they're doing this in China, right? Uh, we're doing it in China as well. 
Because uh, Didi, um, what are they calling themselves now? Didi Kwadi or Didi Shushing? Didi Shushing. Didi Shushing uh, ha- has a service where somebody, you know, if you're out late having a few yeah, drinks, well, somebody will come and drive, drive you home car. in your car. Right. Yeah. But in the chauffeur service, again, this is around how do you make uh, effortless ownership? So let's say, you're, let's say you live in the city here, mm. or where we're testing it in, in Miami, and you need to run some errands that day. And you need to pick up your, you know, your dry cleaning, or you need to go around, and, it, and parking is kind of a problem. You call a chauffeur, and these are these are screened and, and, and highly trained drivers. Uh-huh. Uh, they'll come, they'll drive your car, so you can kind of get in and out. You don't have to worry about parking. You get your errands done, or let's say you're going to the airport and you want to get some work done before you get to the airport, and let's say the drive to the airport's an hour. Mm-hmm. Well. You can call a Lincoln chauffeur, and and they'll be able to uh, to drive your vehicle for you. And in the same token, you can have them go off and get the vehicle washed or things of that nature. So it's really around experimenting around these things, around the, the, the luxury of time. Mm. And let's see, one more service you had that we haven't talked about that's connected. We talked about the pickup and drop, the chauffeur. There was one more, right? Uh, the at-home test drive. At-home test drive. Yeah. So one of the things that, again, this is around not only the other pilots around effortless ownership, uh-huh. but how do you make effortless shopping? Yeah. So a Lincoln customer can go online, they can build their vehicle online, and then you know, they can have, as they're building the vehicle, contact the local dealer, and the dealer will actually come to their home or their office and bring the vehicle or bring uh, color swatches, of fabrics and materials. Hmm. And again, this is around this warm, human, personally crafted experiences that even from the get-go, when you first touch the Lincoln brand, it's consistent. Hmm. Um, And I guess you're figuring that the the conversion rate is going to be higher if somebody has that one-on-one kind of white glove experience. Absolutely. Is that what you found so far? Yeah, it's not only the conversion rates, but it's also uh, their next purchase. They get, uh, they get really loyal to the brand. I, mm. I, I, I don't like using the term brand loyalty because it's, it's, it's about us being loyal to the customer, not right. the other way around. Mm. But absolutely, when, when you know, as you ask customers what hotels they go at, there's a reason people go to one hotel versus another. That's true. Uh, because of their experiences. And that's what we want with, with Lincoln. Not only the product, but the experience that creates a, a, a wonderful bond. So I want to talk about you. Born in Brooklyn, grew yep. up in New Jersey. You got a problem with that? No, just kidding. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was born in New York, grew up in Brooklyn until I was eight and a half. Wow, I grew up until I was five. <laughs> then I moved over the bridge. So how did you conceive of cars early on? What's, what's your earliest car memory? Well, my, actually, my earliest car memory, and this is, this is really kind of bizarre, my folks took us to the 1964 World's Fair in, we had in the Bronx there. And you were about three? And I was about three years old. And that's <laughs> one of my first memories of actually seeing, remember being in a place with a lot of people. And I remembered there was this car display and that's where Ford launched their Mustang. And they had this whole display and this vehicle up on a, the Mustang up on a, uh, on a pedestal. And then a couple of years later, my dad for, I think it was my sixth birthday, he bought me a set of matchbox cars. <laughs> and he not only bought me a set of like 20 matchbox cars, he bought me a case 
that you could put the Matchbox cars in. Right. And on the back of it, it had numbers, so you could you would write what cars that you had. And I fell in love with it then. I still have that case in those cars today. All the cars? All the cars. How many of them are Fords? Uh, you know, probably the, not all of them, but I, <laughs> you know, a few of them. Right. Uh, but that's where I, I, I started falling in love with cars. And then he bought me, um, you know, every year, this is going back even when I was a kid, you know, the Hest gas stations. Mm-hmm. And around Christmas, they always do the cool car or truck. Yeah. And one year they had a car carrier with a couple of cars. <laughs> and, you know, from there, I just kind of fell in love with cars. And I, I still have the first car I ever bought new. Oh, wow. What was that? Uh, it was a uh, 1983 uh, Datsun 280ZX. <laughs> and I, I still have it. I joke with my wife. I say, I have this car longer than I know you. And she kind of yells at me. <laughs> um, that's pretty special. So you bought that new. Talk, talk to me about your initial career trajectory. What did you want to be? Because out of undergrad at Rutgers, you went to work for IBM, where you're now on the board. Nice, you know, complete circle there. But um, you were an economics major, I believe. What drew you to IBM, and did you know where you wanted to end up? Well, I know I always wanted to be in business. You know, my dad was a businessman, and, you know, when you're sitting around the table at at dinner and he's talking about work, that's... That's where it sparked my interest. What part of the business did he talk about? Uh, he, he actually worked in a sprinkler company in New Jersey as a purchasing agent. Hmm. So he would always talk about you know, the issues he was facing, the, the suppliers he was dealing with, and things of that nature. And you know, I just kind of thought that was cool. And when I was a junior in, at Rutgers, um, I got a part-time job at IBM because my brothers actually worked at IBM as salespeople, and they said, hey, there's this opening. And it was a good way to earn money uh-huh. for school. And my job was, you know, in New Jersey, sometimes things disappear. So <laughs> my job was actually to bolt down Selectric typewriters on secretaries' desks so they wouldn't, <laughs> you know, disappear. Right. And uh, that was, again, my, my first experience working in the corporate world while I was a junior in, in college and then did it into my senior year. And I always knew I've, business was for me. Was it what you thought it was going to be? I mean, obviously your brothers worked there in sales, so you had some sense probably from them of what this big company corporate culture was like. But was there any element of shock and either wow or disillusionment? Well, the, the big shock was um, the, 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 all the people in the office. There was a pretty large office. And... The shock to me was, at the time, how does the, the, the leader in that office get everybody marching in the same direction and achieving their objectives and things of that nature? Because what, sho- what shocked me, it didn't really shock me, but everybody had different personalities mm. and they were responsible for different elements of the business. And I couldn't figure out how does that all come together and end up achieving what you know, they want to achieve, whether it's their sales goals or, you know, goals with customers. So you went to business school to learn more about that. And I think you've said in the past that when you were heading out of business school and going to work for Ford, some people were like, why on earth would you want to do that? Well, I, um, my, when I was coming out of uh, business school, I wanted to work for a company that made something because that was important to me because... Um, I didn't I have an interest in like investment banking or consulting. I, I, I wanted something tangible. 
and I wanted to work for an American company. Hmm. And um, I took the interview on campus with, with You didn't want to make Ford. mainframes? Um, you know, I, I could have gone back to IBM, but the reason I came to Ford was because of the people. Hmm. When I interviewed with them, uh, I asked if I could stay an extra day or two after my interview and sit in on some meetings and things of that nature. And I fell in love with the culture. Because to me, just as important as the product was the culture. Hmm. And um, that's, what, that's how I fell in love with the company. And you know, this was the late 80s when you know, the, the auto industry was going into one of its downturns. Right. You know, the Japanese were going to take over the whole industry. And when I was graduating, I'd tell my other classmates, they'd say, where are you, you going to work? I said, Ford. You know, I could see kind of the bubble over their heads saying, you know, so how many classes did you fail? <laughs> and, you know, my, what always drove me was uh, being really true to the things that, that, that stoked my fire. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I've always had the, the philosophy, always run to the fire. Run to those really challenging uh, situations or businesses that you can learn a lot, but also contribute a lot. I look at your resume, and you're, I mean, you were moving fast. Uh, high positions at a young age. You know, I think at 38, you were, what was the position? Uh, CEO Youngest. of Mazda. Yeah, CEO of Mazda. So it was almost like if this guy's not CEO of Ford by the time he's 60, something will have gone terribly wrong. Um, where did that drive come from? Was it the same way in school? Were you in sports? Yeah. Was there... Was there some method that you had about, hey, I'm going to get there first? It's pretty easy. I'm the youngest of three boys. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, if you, didn't, if you weren't fast at the kitchen table or in sports because, you know, you get knocked around, you know, that was part of it. But the other part is, you know, my parents uh, always uh, encouraged us to be the best at what we do mm. and always put yourself fully into it. Uh, don't do something that, you know, halfway because it's not worth it. So that's what's always stoked me. I mean, I would come home and said, Dad, I got to, here's my report card, I got a B. He goes, that's great. He goes, you know, how are you going to get an A? Mm. And it was that kind of encouragement. And at the same time, again, being the youngest of three boys, I mean, you got you to gotta figure out how to push yourself, also be a little bit diplomatic. And you times. took it as encouragement, not conditionality or nothing I do is good enough. No, I took it as encouragement because the way my parents parented was, yes, they were demanding, but they did it in a loving way, mm-hmm. not, not a, you know, you need to do this. And that has always, has always stoked me. And competing with people who are bigger or stronger or in some way older than you, you think yeah. that also shaped you? Yeah, older it's, brothers. you develop a, a, an, inability, an inability to accept defeat. <laughs> and never be a victim. Right. Because being a victim, that's easy. Right? Anybody can be a victim. But whatever life throws at you, you just look at it and you say, okay, that's my reality. Then how do I take control of my destiny? So whatever it turns out, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, I did the best that I could. My brother's seven years older than I am. So especially when we were playing video games, yeah. he would always start out better than me. And then I'd you know, I had to be able to suffer defeat after defeat and sort of figure out the, and eventually yep. I'd be able to start beating him. Yep. And then he'd say, okay, you can't play anymore. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Until I master this game and I would never win again. <laughs> so I relate as the, as the youngest. Um, you moved around a lot. 
yeah. geographically. Yeah. I mean, you, you headed uh, some business in Europe, luxury cars, including Aston Martin. You're over Asia. Um, but I think you also got married pretty young. Stress on the family. How, how are you able to keep that all together? Because, I mean, sometimes people turn down opportunities yeah. because they don't know if they can... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed. I, I, I have a wife and a partner and a best friend who, uh, before I, I, I had the opportunity to go overseas, when it was presented, I told her, I said, you know, this is us. This is, we go as a family unit. And if you don't want to go, that's cool. And my wife was up for anything. Hmm. And so we went over. It was supposed to be a two-year, originally two years. It turned into ten oh, in, wow. in, in multiple countries. Uh-huh. But... Our approach is, was we're gonna we're gonna have fun wherever we go, and I always tell my folks when we present them with uh, international opportunities, I said it's really important that your partner's on board mm. because if they're not happy, you're not going to be happy. And I've been really blessed. My wife has schlepped around to four corners of the earth, and we've we've seen and done just wonderful things and our, our kids have had experiences that have shaped them in their young adult lives and uh, it's great but you, you, it has to be a partnership. Joining Ford in the late 80s you've seen a lot. Um, I imagine union negotiations aren't always fun. Uh, there are economic cycles. What's been the hardest time? You know there's never you know most of the most of the assignments I've had have gone into really bad situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, running into the fire? Running into the fire. <laughs> and so, you know, I've kind of been conditioned that, you know, how do you go into a situation, you know, how, however dire it is, how do you make it better and make it durable over time? Has there been a situation that got worse while you were in it? Because it's one thing. I mean, if the yeah. situation's already bad and you're running yeah. into it, that's one thing. But if you accidentally left the stove on and that yeah. was the source of the fire, that's something different. Ever left the stove on? Well, there's been, uh, there's been some instances where, uh, you know, I've, let's say I haven't, this may sound a little uh, brutal, but I haven't moved fast enough on uh, replacing people mm-hmm. that uh, maybe were naysayers or uh, really didn't buy into our plan or where we were heading. And... And, and, and to me, that's really important because my approach always is not to go in into any of these situations and say, you know, I'm the leader and here's the plan and, you know, now just go deliver it. Because? Because it's not their plan, right? right? You're just giving it to them. And so one of the things I learned in, in a number of my assignments, whether it was originally in South America or then in Japan, is taking the time with the team early on to say, okay, here's our reality. Now, let's break that apart and then just say, okay, what is our plan going forward? What's our plan to win going forward? Where are we going to play and how are we going to win? And then taking the time over, you know, in the case of when I came back to North America here in the U.S., I told Bill Ford when I got in that position, give me 60 days with this team and we'll put a plan together. And so we spent 60 days together, you know, working through and struggling through some things. But when we had that plan... It was everybody's plan. How do you, uh, that's interesting, because you, you hear 60 days for a plan, but I don't know how well you knew these folks. 
if you were kind of new to this team, if they trusted you, if they had heard about you, what's the first thing you do when you've got to come into a new team, yeah. right? The pressure is on, yeah. and you've got to put a plan together. Do you go do a ropes course? Do you? No. What do you do? <laughs> the first thing I do, I, I knew some of them, uh, but the first thing I do very early on, because I, I'm a, I'm just a product of my experience, and so I remember when a new leader would come in. Sometimes we take six, nine months to figure out who is this person. Mm. So one of the things I've done in a lot of my assignments is literally the first week um, I have a, a session, like a half-day session on, okay, who is Mark Fields? How do I like to work? What's my background? What are, what are my priorities from a leadership standpoint? So from the get-go, people can say, oh, okay, I kind of I get the gist of this, this guy. Mm. And, there's, and so once you get that out of the way, then you can get on with the work. And then importantly, you have to, I have to live up to what <laughs> I you know, talked about in terms of my leadership. Right. Because if the, if the sleeves don't match the cuffs, people just think you're trying to manipulate them. Right. So that's one of the first things. And then the second thing is when we work through things, I roll up my sleeves with the teams and don't just delegate and of course you delegate but you can't divorce yourself and think you know you're the great leader of floating above all this stuff you have to help the teams and get your hands dirty a bit and help them think through things well you're a busy man uh and i know you've got to move on to some other things but one last question i'm not going to ask you to pick a favorite child but tell me a technology a car that you're particularly excited about that we haven't seen yet well, I think uh, very clearly the development of autonomous vehicles is very, very exciting. It's very challenging, but I strongly believe that uh, autonomy, autonomous vehicles can have just as much impact on society as the moving assembly line had you know, 100 years ago. Wow. The economic benefits, the safety benefits, the societal benefits. Think about being able, you know, that, that emotional time when you have to take the keys away from your parents because they can't drive anymore, and you're taking away their freedom, or a disabled person. Imagine what this technology can do, and that is something I'm, I'm excited about everything at Ford. In my 28 <laughs> years, I haven't been more excited about where we're heading than in my 28 years, and it's not just because I'm the CEO, <laughs> right. uh, but it's technologies like that, enabling technologies that are really gonna allow us to do wonderful things for society, and as a business. My thanks to Mark Fields, I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and now on YouTube. And yes, it is live, and I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next week on the podcast, Alexandra Labenthal is the CEO of Labenthal Holdings, one of the oldest family names on Wall Street. Her business has hit a rough stretch recently, but she says she's as determined as ever to mount a comeback and keep pushing the financial industry on behalf of women. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.